This week on Cine Chill. When you get older in life, you basically don't regret the things you did do, you regret the things you didn't do. We've got to be honest with ourselves, and there's certain things that we find are our natural talents. It's a bit like a blind date the first time you work with someone. You're walking on eggshells to a certain extent because you're kind of, you're sort of sussing each other out a little bit. Basically, this whole journey for me was all about self-discovery. That's really fundamentally why I do this. Throughout the whole history of cinema, it's always been very closely associated to, to what's possible technically. Every time I place a light, I'm learning something. People thought films were made by directors. You know, that's what they thought. I had these figures in my career, these kind of male and female figures that saw something in me before I saw it in myself. Welcome to this week's episode of Cine Chill. On today's show, I'm joined by Ian Mori. Ian is a cinematographer who has worked for brands such as Amazon, Guinness, Ikea, to name a few. On the episode, we talk about how he got started, some of his philosophies in light, and his YouTube show, Set Notes. Enjoy the show. What was it that got you into filmmaking? Did you always want to do cinematography? What did that journey look like? Well, it's kind of interesting that um, I've ended up sort of lecturing on the subject of, of cinematic lighting or, or light because the, my first, I actually worked as a dispatch rider. Um, I, when I was younger, I, I worked, uh, um, I basically left school with not a lot of ambition. I was dyslexic at school and I found I couldn't really see beyond the system. I couldn't see the benefit of it and I, I, and I lacked attention um, in the classes that probably would have kind of, you know, got me into maybe a, a university at that time. So when I left school, I really didn't have any plans on, on any vocation or any further education. And I just sort of threw myself into the world of medial kind of work and had a variety of jobs. And it's when I actually just started dispatch riding, I dispatch rode in the city of London in the late, mid to late 80s. And I basically started having to get up at a crack of dawn and do like a full day's work. And particularly during the winter months, I'd be, I'd go to, I'd go to work where it's dark and I'd leave when it was dark and I'd watch the whole arc of the sun and the light through the day. And I remember becoming very interested in, in how that light affected my mood, you know, because you're completely exposed to the elements all day and you're on your own as well. So there's no, there's no kind of social interaction. So you kind of like, it's almost like you're kind of doing a light study without realizing you're doing a light study. You just sort of, it's a weird sort of state to be in. I really enjoyed it because you're kind of moving around the city a little bit like a ghost, you know? So you're kind of on your own, you're with the traffic, you're kind of moving into in and out of lanes and you're kind of dropping off packages to anonymous security guards. And so you have this kind of this, this sort of half life sort of experience in London. And then mm -hmm. for, for me, the thing that kept me kind of really, uh, interested and enjoying it. Firstly, I was exploring London, which is a fascinating city anyway. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, I remember the first, when I first started working, I had a map and, and then within a year of working, I didn't even use a map because I knew the street so well. And it, so that, that was one benefit. It's like kind of doing the knowledge as a taxi driver. But the other benefit for me was kind of watching the light change. And, um, and I started thinking then deep down, I was kind of very affected by that emotionally. So it was quite a kind of, sort of almost like a spiritual thing for me. And I felt I need to do something with light. And that was the first kind of light bulb that went off in my head. And then it was more down to the fact that I knew that I couldn't really work. At the time, I was quite a kind of insular person. And I thought it's probably good for me to work within a group. So that's when I decided to go from just working with light, which could have been just a fine artist, a painter or a photographer. Mm -hmm. And I chose filmmaking because of the social aspect of it. And I had this... And I grew up, you know, uh, watching a lot of movies when I was younger as well. So I, I always had an interest in cinema, uh, but I think it was really light was a driving force. And then, you know, I, I you know, I, I had kind of interested in, you know, at one point I wanted to be an actor and I was a terrible, horrible actor. So I knew that wasn't going to happen. And, you know, I had these other little things that skirting around cinema. But I think fundamentally it was my interest in light. And when that became a role that I understood you could do in cinema, then I was like, OK, this could be for me. Uh, and that really happened in the first year of college when I first went to film school, because at the time I was also I'm really interested in music as well. And I thought, well, I could do a sound, you know, so it could have been sound or I wanted something that was a craft. I think I knew myself well enough at that point to know that the craft is very important. You know, it's something that you can kind of you can build up over a period of your career. 
so I've always been interested in craft and I've always been interested in light. And they were the two things that yeah came together for me. When you went to film school, did you have in mind then that you want to work as a cinematographer or did you want to do, I know you mentioned acting or did you want to do directing or was like, no, I want, this is what I'm, I'm passionate about. This is what I think I can be good at. Yeah, for me, it was basically, I remember it so clearly. It was, I was, um, I actually did a thing called an access course. I wasn't very academic at school uh, and I'd left with literally no qualifications. I mean, I had nothing of any <laughs> note. Uh, and then uh, when I wanted to sort of enroll in, into sort of a university, uh, you know, f- f- film school or media university, I started realising to my horror that there's basically, um, there were no courses that would accept uh, you know, a student with, with, with not a certain level of qualifications. And I went, I fell f- way short of that. So I actually ended up, I got this book on, um, it was actually a book that was basically listed all of the film schools, all of the media film schools in the whole of the UK. Uh, and it was, a lot of them were kind of uh, back to recognised as well, you know, the kind of industry union, yeah, which actually bizarrely doesn't seem to have that much importance now but back then when I started this process it seemed like that was the only way to get into the film industry if you went to a union recognised course um, so I started studying union recognised courses in the UK and how I could get into to one of them and it was kind of at first it seemed absolutely impossible because I simply didn't have the required sort of uh, education for that uh, and then I discovered this course which was, which was actually what's called an, back then it's called an access course which had which is set up to basically help underprivileged pe- people of underprivileged backgrounds get into university and it was a two-year course uh, at Brixton Brixton South London and it's called access to film and video and that's when my life really changed actually um, because I previous to that I wasn't academic I had no interest in study I did, couldn't as I, as I mentioned I really sort of squandered that opportunity went into the real world of kind of working as a cab driver and as you know uh, you know a supervisor of Pizza Hut and working as a shop assistant at Marks and Spencers and all of these kind of jobs that were not really vocational jobs for me um, and then I went back basically I realised I had a t- enough enough of a taste of life to know that without specialist training, then life can be quite a monotonous, tedious experience, you know. So, um, so I realised then I started, and, as, and I'd say for anyone listening to this that they're trying to decide on what they want to do, it's like sometimes it does take time. It's like I don't, I wouldn't put too much pressure on yourself, but when when you get a sense of something, you know, like I did with the, that light, it's really important to follow that, you know. It's really important to kind of like follow your heart, I suppose, you know, is what I'm saying here. And so I had a sense that I really wanted this, you know, and, and it didn't come out of uh, uh, anyone forcing me or any, anything in, uh, you know, my environment or my peer group or anyone. It was basically just came out from really deep inside me. And it's just this, this interest uh, with something and it, and it grew from that and it started as I say of being an impossibility at first and then when I looked into it there was one chink of light and that chink of light was just access to film and video and the way I got into that onto that course was um, I actually got a Super 8 camera and I actually made a film with my next door neighbour and one of my friends uh, and I made a short film uh, it was a quirky little film about a man who loses his passport and gets, well, it's about a man that's getting stalked by someone and you think this person's, um, you know, going to attack him and it's actually, he's trying to return his passport. And it's, it was about, uh, you know, my friend was African as well. So it had a kind of, you know, kind of themes of sort of alienation and immigration, all these sort of themes it had around it. And I, I got a sort of soundtrack by, um, I was really into John Coltrane, who's a jazz saxophonist, and I had this kind of soundtrack by John Coltrane. And it, so it came off as <laughs> it came off as a really cool little art house kind of weird little <laughs> film, you know. And it was really kind of unintentional. It's just it was just sort of I was just doing what I thought would be right at the time. And um, and luckily, just luckily, things came together. And it wasn't a horrendous piece of work. It was kind of it had some charm, you know. And so that got me into film school. Really, um, that got me into onto the access to film video course. So they didn't ask you to, you know, they didn't care about your previous qualifications. They didn't care about your school, you know, um, you know, history or anything. They just, all they wanted to know is if, if you had an interest in cinema. And I de- demonstrated that through making this Super 8 film. I left school with no qualifications as well. My attitude has been for a long time, if I'm not interested in something, I'm not going to learn about it. And I was like that at school. It wasn't because I 
couldn't learn about it. I mean, I had teachers that said I had a learning difficulty and I've never been like tested for that. But I've known like deep down, if I'm not interested in the subject, then I'm not going to learn about it. And that might sound like quite uh, arrogant or ignorant. But then if I am interested in the subject, then I will just absolutely learn as much as I can about it. Once you got into the film school, what was that like? What was the experience like? At that point, I was really hungry to do something. I think I'd had enough of, as I said, enough of kind of life to know that I was kind of, I guess you'd call me a a mature student because I was... You know, I had a few years out of school before I went back to this. And um, I had enough of life to know that, that I had to do this. You know, it, it had, I had like someone lit a fire under me almost. That's what it felt like. And, and I, I was really eager to learn. Um, so I basically had a completely different attitude. And I had two or three, I remember sort of three really significant tutors at this course um, that really changed my life. And they basically... Uh, took me from pretty much unacademic, you know, uh, sort of dyslexic kind of mind uh, that really had, I had trouble with kind of concentrating and writing essays and structuring things. And they basically took that person and they basically molded me into someone that could survive on a degree course within a couple of years, which is kind of incredible. You know, they showed me how to, you know, I didn't even know the structure of an essay, you know, and, and, you know, they showed me how to write essays and, you know, so they really helped me with the academic side of things. Uh, but what's, what, what I think the most inspirational tutor I had was probably, his name's Arthur Howes. He, he's basically a documentary filmmaker that came in to teach us about film theory. Uh, and at that time, uh, we didn't, re- you know, we didn't really have, say, like, it wasn't really a high level of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, sort of teaching. It wasn't kind of, industry professional showing us how to do you know how it works it was basically you know very very good willed um quite competent teachers but you know we had an english teacher we had we had a you know sociology teacher we didn't really have like proper filmmakers showing us so the only guy that came along that was authentic that was a real filmmaker was this guy off a house and he was quite an interesting character because you know he was actually making documentaries and then what he would do is he'd, he'd um, you know, in the time off, he'd come and teach us something and then he'd disappear again and he'd get, you know, fly off to, you know, to Africa and finish making his documentary. So he, he was the real deal, you know, and that's the first time I'd ever actually seen a real filmmaker in the flesh. You know, my parents, when I was growing up, we didn't really have an art. You know, I had a very middle class sort of background and my parents were very kind of, you know, quite uh, conservative people and they didn't really have an interest in music or art or you know so I basically this whole journey for me was all about self-discovery it was all about I was finding it out for myself you know and so when I met Arthur Arthur had quite a strong emotional impact on me because I hadn't really at that point I hadn't had a kind of a male older male figure in my life that was an artist that I could go oh Christ I could be like you do you know what I mean so that was quite a huge just watching him the way he behaved the way he spoke about cinema his passion you know I mean the guy was just full of passion uh and that was I found that really contagious actually so I would say that had the biggest impact on me it's just more of the spirit of filmmaking when I when I understood there's a sort of spirit there that's like a tangible spirit you know it's just a deep deep curiosity curiosity with with life that's what it was with Arthur it's like he could have been doing, he could have been a psychologist, you know, he could, he could have been, you know, um, you know um, a newsman, you know, he could have been a journalist, but he chose cinema and he really, he really loved that, that medium. And that really came across. And that for me was really contagious. Did you, you know, when you were like a, a young child, did you watch many movies? Did you ever think this is something I'd like to do, but it just seemed, you know, as, as I said, so distant, so far away? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a, I was a child of the 70s, you know, I, I was born in 1967. Um, so um, I grew up around some really great cinema, uh, and uh, but it was for adults. And I remember, um, I, have you heard of Gregory, Gregory Crudson, the photographer? Um, no. Well, he's, he, people uh, oft, often reference him in commercials because he does basically very, very cinematic, large format photography, art photography. Uh, and uh, he did a famous book called Twilight that's really, really beautiful um, 
very it's kind of like the David Lynch of art house photographers almost you know and his father his father was a psychologist and he had a a, a room downstairs where his get, where his patients would come for their treatment and he basically could hear and I never forget this he could hear the rumblings in the room downstairs of adult conversation going on and as a child he found that really kind of like it's the, it's almost like the subconscious of you know it's almost like Jungian you know that kind of like that dark kind of shadow of subconscious that goes on that's bubbling beneath the surface you know and he yeah. didn't have he couldn't quite hear what was being said but he knew that adult things were being said you know uh you know and and that fascinated him as a child and it, so a lot of his imagery when you watch look at his work now it has a lot of that kind of that um other you know that's a famous picture of a woman putting her hand through a plug hole down into kind of like an underworld uh, and his work has a lot of that kind of quality to it. So I remember, uh, like as a child, when I was upstairs in my room and these 70s movies were going on downstairs and my parents were watching these movies, I had that similar kind of experience of knowing that, you know, and occasionally I'd look through the gap in the door and see a little bit of a, a film. But, but later, when the moment, because the moment the 80s, uh, mid 80s, late 80s came along and people had their own VHS, you know, players and we could actually start watching our own films in, in the privacy of our room, I had suddenly, I had access to this kind of adult world of, of, of grown-up cinema, you know. But I'd had those, so I had those very early formative experiences of, of hearing soundtracks and seeing glimpses through the crack in the door. And that created a real interest in cinema for me, I think. And, and, and even now, 70s film... 70s movies, particularly 70s American movies, independent 70s American movies, have a particular place in my heart because of that experience. Uh, so I'd say that early on I had that that kind of interest in in sort of forbidden cinema, you know, adult cinema, which you know. And then later on, when I revisited that through the through the power of video, uh, it ha it, I was watching it now as an adult, you know, or as a young adult, and understanding the power of it firsthand along with that previous experience of, of, of having a sense that there was something really important being said, but I couldn't understand what it was. So yeah, I'd say that, that that sort of, I always had that sense of cinema. And then when I went to film school, what happened was that that sense of cinema was opened up in, in world cinema, of course, because a lot of film school is about introducing you to other cultures of cinema, which is like kind of like, you know, it's like sofa traveling or couch traveling or whatever, when you basically, can go anywhere in the world through cinema. And then that, that sort of power of cinema for me was, oh my God, you know, people laugh in India. People tell jokes in India, you know? It's, you know what I mean? It's like before that, I, I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't have that kind of access, you know? Uh, you know, that I didn't realize that, that that sense of humor is an international thing and it changes slightly, but not that much. And people laugh at some very similar things around the world. And there's some very funny cinema from Iran or whatever. Do you know what I mean? People, and, and that, that really opened my mind up to different cultures and uh, great filmmakers from around the globe. Um, and the other thing that happened was Arthur Howes really, uh, again, um, had this big impact on me. And he basically taught us about fiction cinema through documentary. So he was basically like, he knew that we all wanted to learn about Spike Lee and, you know, and, and um, Martin Scorsese movies. And he said, well, if you really want to learn about these guys' movies, then you need to understand the cinematic tropes that they basically uh, use in their films. And basically, they're both very, very influenced by... The, the, well, as every filmmaker is influenced by the history of documentary, you know. So he basically introduced us to, to that, and that was really good education for me because, you know, that was a, a proper filmmaker that had a deep, deep understanding of cinema, drip-feeding us with films that would have a big impact on us, you know. And that felt to me like the best possible film course for me was just that, that, that year, two years I spent with Arthur, you know. My favourite decade for film, the late 70s, 80s. More recently, the change in a lot of the image in post, which, you know, is apparent in a lot of Hollywood movies these days. You know, the, the joke of teal and orange. Well, mm. if, unfortunately, it, it's not a joke. Someone posted something recently. It was a video on, on the history of Bond and how bad the original James Bond films were lit. I prefer the old James Bond films, the way they were, the way they were filmed and the way they looked and they had this classic feel to them and even though they were filmed you know we're talking like 60s and, and 70s for me i think they look better than 
the highly, highly polished films that are coming out now where the camera's always moving and don't have time to really look at the scene of, of what's going on. What's your thoughts on how cinematography has changed since you've been involved in it? Well, I actually have a lot to say on this subject, so um, I could really literally fill an hour's conversation easily, just just one question. I'll, I'll basically, I mean, I am going to be doing YouTube. Uh, I've just started a YouTube channel. I'm going to start doing some YouTube um, breakdowns of certain movements oh, in cinematography. I've been doing these, li- these little talks to kind of formulate some of the ideas I've been kind of and some of the practices I've been um, I've been developing over the years. Uh, and I wanted to kind of feed that back to people and see kind of, see you know if there's an uptake on that and if if i can kind of use that uh the knowledge i get from the feedback to kind of help the system develop further you know or if there's people that are kind of other people that are interested in forming a community Mm -hmm. around it uh so that's hence why i was doing the talks and then i started realizing that there's one thing talking about uh like techniques you know cinematographers love we 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 have a kind of nerdy technical side to us most most often and we love talking about lenses and cameras and lighting fixtures and stuff like that and what what kind of techniques we've learned along the way but then i started realizing that that's one thing but to basically bed that in something um historic uh or or you know some you know like for example one of the talks i was doing i started talking about baroque art and how that influenced me and how that led to certain looks that i'm trying to experiment with now and i i started realizing there's a real power so there's one thing about being an artist and using tools and using your instinct and all of these things that we do uh but but i think there's um to, to you know like earlier i said you know the craft is really important to me and i thought to to progress with this and to kind of give it the respect it's due the craft that is i needed to understand a bit more about the history of it you know so i what i'm doing now at the moment particularly during the lockdown as I'm studying cinema, cinematography and I've gone on this sort of journey with uh, like basically looking at all of the films that are critically, critically regarded as having good cinematography throughout the years and sort of understanding them, uh, having a deeper understanding of them and what I hope to do is circle back and bring that more into the talks and into some of the uh, breakdowns I'm going to be doing on, on, on YouTube. Um, so what I'm hoping to do in the future is when we get when we go back to work is I'll be I'll be sh- using certain techniques on the productions I do and then I'll be exploring I'll be talking about those techniques uh, uh, like as a post-mortem but also I'll be bringing in uh, other influences you know other other kind of uh, films that have influenced me to break it down further so with that in mind um, one of the things that I could just briefly talk about now is the, uh, in answer to your question um, I'm fascinated by one of the things that drives cinematography obviously is technology so the way films look as you mentioned uh, you know when it's the transition from di- film to digital for example has a huge impact on how films look now so, but that's always been a case in cinematography. It isn't just, I mean, that, that was one big step going from film to digital. But throughout the whole history of cinema, um, it's always been very closely associated to, to what's possible technically. Uh, you know, like when you had very early cinema, um, uh, you basically had silent cinema. And then when sound came along, that, that had a huge impact on cinematography, particularly with regard to movement. Uh, and you know, working with uh, available light as well. When you went from black and white film stocks to color film stocks, you know, and so all of these things were quite influenced. But the one, the one area that I would say, in modern sort of color cinematography, that seemed, seemingly has the biggest impact was the evolution of lighting technology. So you started off very early, very early on with um, films like, you know, let's talk about sort of Citizen Kane, for example, you know, um, which is, you know, regarded as one of the best films ever made. And that was shot by a guy called Greg Tolland. And at the time, all of the cinematographers back at that time were using these things called carbon arcs, which are these big, huge lights that, um, that have two carbons fusing that create a point source of light. And that creates a certain kind of look. And that was a very specular light that produced very, very clean, hard, sun-like shadows. Uh, and so that had a certain kind of um, graphic nature to it. And so the whole kind of film noir, um, you know, look grew out of that technology, you know. Um, and so if you look at Citizen K now, you'll look at, you know, some of the shafts of light he's got and some of the, the, the graphicness of the frames is, 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 is you know, something to, something to behold, you know. It's like, it's, it's so stunning now. Uh, and then we moved on um, in the uh, 80s, the beginning of the 80s, we suddenly got this technology called HMI technology. So it went, it went from the carbon arcs, and when carbon actually became too toxic to use on set, because the carbon fusing creates a lot of 
smoke and gas. And at some point they, they had to move away from that and they started using tungsten fixtures. But tungsten fixtures never had that hardness to them, they had a softer look to them. So you'll see in cinematography that the look becomes slightly more tungsten and slightly more softer. Uh, and then what happens, HMI comes along in the 80s and that's films like Poltergeist, you know, that have that very kind of blue cool light um, that's very, very HMI, very, you know, it's a harder quality of light. And the reason why it looks harder on colour film is because actually uh, the film is built from free, free colour um, uh, dye, free, free colour strips, basically. Uh, well, it's actually three black and white layers that have have um, have filters in them and become free color layers when you print them. But you have sort of you know free uh, uh, color, uh, sorry, free black and white strips that are sensitive to certain colors. And the the one that's the most uh, has the highest resolution in film is actually the the, the green and the blue, and the, the red has the lowest resolution. So when you shoot with cooler light with HMI light actually looks harder on film and you know when you shoot with tungsten light it actually looks it looks softer because it's stimulating more of the red and less of the blue you see what I mean so um so the HMI had an impact and it made things look very again very sharp and very kind of um sort of cool and sort of futuristic and then you know films like Blade Runner came along in the late 80s and then the xenon light came along which, which is that parallel beam shaft light which was used uh, throughout Blade Runner and that, that had a completely unique look to it that we'd never seen before and then you know that's the, the, the kind of the last analogue sci-fi movie you know um, uh, and then um, and then another film that I think had a big impact on cinematography was a film Seven by um, lit by Darius Konji and that basically was the first time I'd seen a lighting system that I'm really fascinated by which I refer to as reductive precision lighting and that's when he first started using Kina flow lights uh, at least fluorescent tube lights I mean they've been used on films before like Barfly and stuff which is another film uh, worth note worth noting but Seven was when Darius Konji who was an absolute master and controller film contrast uh, he had these techniques that he'd use like he used a thing called bleach bypass ENR uh, and he used a thing called a Vericon. So if you go into his, he, he's a, he was an absolute master of the craft. And he basically worked out this system of using fluorescent lights and uh, and a combination of things, you know, HMI fluorescent. He used, he mixed it, mixed it all up and basically produced this very, um, what I would say is a very modern way of lighting, which is kind of where we are now almost. It's like we use lots of different fixtures and we use a combination of, mix, well, a lot of DOPs use a mixture of LED and, you know, and uh, and tungsten and HMI, and, you know, uh, and we do it in a kind of more reductive way. We, you know, we 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 do it, um, you know, by controlling the ambience of the room and by having smaller controllable fixtures in that room. And it's not done in necessarily a traditional way where you have bigger lights and they're further away and you have a lot of uh, like um, flagging and netting and you know shaping the light. You know, it's it's done in in, in as I say a reductive way. Uh, so yeah, so basically the whole of cinematography has been changed through the different technologies that people have applied to it and there's certain cinematographers like Bradford uh, is it Bradford Young who uh, shot Arrivals and what he does is he basically uses a high level like much like uh, uh, Lebetsky uh, Emmanuel Lebetsky uh, who's they're both kind of known for sort of using natural light and, and Bradford Young particularly uh, he's got a certain style where he, he, he underexposes quite a lot and He's very a practitioner of this sort of reductive way of lighting where he's kind of like he's shaping light by taking light away rather than adding too much, you know, uh, and his light, you know, there's a there's actually a DOP before him uh, who shot The Godfather called Gordon Willis, who was kind of like the, you know, talking of 70s cinema. He was the, the master of one of the masters of 70s cinema. Um, you know, I mean, so we basically exist in 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 a culture of uh, a film, a conversation of film that's constantly questioning the techniques we use and updating them and there's certain cinematographers that come along and embrace some of these techniques and run with them and, and create their own sort of signature style or you know or, or a period of their work where it's got a signature style to it by really mastering these techniques and that sort of fascinates me you know the fact that it's constantly evolving uh, and so what I'm doing at the moment is the techniques I'm using at the moment uh, I'm trying to you know find my own kind of path or to craft and try and develop things myself you know would you move to the feature film space is that something you'd like to do no i really like short form uh i i mean i do short films but um what i really like about short form is a variety and i'm really quite fascinated at the moment with building up 
this community of young filmmakers trying these, like I said, this sort of this this um, these certain sort of uh, techniques of lighting and uh, cinematography that you know I'm d trying to develop at the moment, and I'm really interested in where that leads. Now there there, there might be a director that kind of sees some of my work and thinks, oh, this will be really suited for a certain film. The problem with films, though, generally speaking, is I can kind of separate myself from a bad commercial if, you know, if I do some good lighting on it uh, and, yeah. you know, well, not good lighting, but if I feel like I've kind of done it something appropriate and it's kind of, you know, and I, look, I, I love, like, I love just the act of placing a light and it, there's a deep cur curiosity inside me. I'm always wondering what it, something will look like when the light's either turned off or turned on, you know, um, I like that. That's, that's really fundamentally why I do this you know it's like I always you know my advice to people is find a craft that you can maintain an interest for a long period of time because it takes the Malcolm Gladwell thing says 10,000 hours which I mentioned in the power video it takes a long time to really master what you're doing the problem with our culture at the moment is we have this this sort of dismissive respect for uh, expertise you know we, we don't really we're kind of in the world and I think that's changing now I think the coronavirus is going to change that because you know like the politicians <laughs> haven't handled this situation very well and it's the experts that really should have been listened to from the start you know and there's people in the NHS like you know the doctors in the NHS are highly trained and we need them more now than ever right so I think there's going to be a movement back towards expertise and a respect for expertise you know and that really appeals to me because I think part of the problem with you know what's happened with our kind of culture around Instagram and you know social media is that we 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 believe the marketing is more important than the actual content. You know, uh, and oftentimes it's proven to be true that if you market yourself really well, you can do really well without really giving the craft um, and it's it's you know giving the craft respect, but also it's respect self respect as well. You want to you don't want to feel like an imposter. You want to basically know that you've done enough hours to really have mastered something, and that journey is the thing that is the exciting bit anyway. You know, the journey to that point. You know, and it's never ending. You know, it's like I, the, you know, I'm always, you know, like I say, every time I place a light, I'm learning something. And it's always taken me by surprise. I'm always doing something going, Christ, you know, I, I suffer from amnesia as well, I feel, because I, I do something. I think, Christ, I've, I'm sure I've learned this before at some point, but I'm having to relearn it, you know, in a different context, perhaps, you know. But um, so, um, yeah, so that's kind of the thing that engages me now on long form. Um, uh, the first point is that when you kind of agree to doing something, it's a commitment that could last for months and that could um, affect the relationships I've been building up in my short form. Um, so it's, uh, it's a different kind of, it's a different so social kind of area and you kind of, and the other thing is to get, to, you know, to do good films, you've had to, you have to sometimes, you know, to start out, you have to have done a few not so good films and I'm, I'm kind of not willing to do that. I'd much rather focus on trying to do the best short form stuff I can um, and not go through that pain. I mean, if the, if the right film comes along, if someone comes along with a script that I think I can, you know, one of the questions I am going to ask myself is, can I add something to this? You know, can I, with, with what I'm doing now, can I really add something to this? Do I like the story and can I, can I add something to that story and do I, will I be able to, to work well with the, the director? So there's a lot of questions I'd be asking myself. I guess, I guess I'm thinking aloud as I'm considering your question and I think the answer to it is I will consider it. But, um, but I'm quite um, excited by the prospects of what I'm building at the moment, which is, you know, um, the, the training kind of wing with, with the YouTube and the Instagram and the set notes thing that we're doing and uh, and sort of wanting to do more YouTube videos of breaking things down and then you know uh, and also developing these systems that I'm sort of tinkering with at the moment and trying to get the most out of them trying to align myself with with how the, the industry is going to be after corona and seeing where things are and what kind of benefit you know my uh, interest and training can bring to that situation you know that's that's kind of yeah, and not really thinking too much about if I'm going to do long form. I mean, a lot of people my age, because uh, I'm, you know, uh, I'm in my early 50s now, a lot of people my age would basically naturally progress to doing long form. But I'm not sure that's the right lifestyle or creative kind of journey for me.
I understand that. Doing commercials, that's fine because you can got a huge body of work there. But then if you made, say, a movie that looked great but wasn't a good movie, you're going to be associated with the movie. That's what, like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. But I really think, like, the the YouTube stuff that you want to do, I think that's going to just, I think that will blow up for you because I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you now. The amount of people who were at the Power of Video that I spoke to and they were like, out of all the talks, like yours is one of the favorites. I just wish they hadn't have cut it down. I mean, I remember you had all the slides and you were literally like, I don't know how many you had, but I think we probably only saw like 25% of them or something. I had over 100 slides, which is ridiculous. It just goes to show how amateur I am at this. But then that's what the YouTube channel will be allowing me to do. Um, You know, over a period of time, I'll be able to kind of um, release uh, videos and basically develop that whole kind of side of things, which I'm really excited about. And that's something that, as you say, you know, there's, there's some potential with that. And I think, you know, in a way that, you know, it's like going back to the really early question and why you got into cinema, there's a certain, we've got to be honest with ourselves and there's, there's certain things that we find are our natural talents or whatever. Um, some people would even argue they're not our natural talents. They're just, it's just consciousness coming through us as a talent. And we should be just grateful for that and not too, you know, like egotistical about it, but just kind of realise that that's something that we're very lucky to have recognised in ourselves. And and so I think <clears throat> to, to, to have the interest as I do in uh, cinematography and lighting, but also have the um, maybe the ability or the interest or the enthusiasm to, to share that with other people, that narrows it down more. I remember when I met uh, when I met actually Dado uh, years ago. Uh, he's a big German uh, uh, man in, in in stature and in and and in influence. He's won several Oscars for his contributions to cinema, and he's a he's a real character. I mean, he was a cinematographer for many years, and he went through like you know like a world war and stuff as a cinematographer. So he has a huge um, you know history uh, and a huge amount of experience. Uh, and now he's set up this empire of, of having the best cinematic optics pretty much in the industry, I think. When I first met him, I, they were doing a, a documentary on him and they, are, they asked me to do an interview uh, uh, because I use, I've used his lights over the years. I mean, we use them a lot for product shots early on and then I started using them more generally. Um, and that was a big kind of um, uh, movement into, towards precision lighting was really through using these small, very, very precise uh, lights um, that were traditionally used for product shots and then moving them into using them more generally. And that for me was um, the origins of the precision lighting kind of movement. I feel kind of like, you know, it's happening now and something that I'm, I'm personally wanting to explore. But he basically um, noticed when he heard me interviewed, he said, he sent me an email and said, there's, there's few people that understand light. or there's few, I think he said, there's few people that see light and fewer less that can communicate that. Uh, you're, you know, you're kind of rare because of that, you know, and that's the first time, you know, when I said earlier that Arthur House had a big impact on me. Um, well, I had these figures in my career, these kind of male and female figures that saw something in me before I saw it in myself, you know, and I think one of the great things you can do as a teacher is you can basically your students get seen by you for who they are. You know, I remember that is a, it's a beautiful thing. A psychologist once said to me, being seen is a very, very potent thing. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I had, when I was a child, I had a, there's a gardener that used to hang around with me, um, you know, and he used to share his lunch with me and he used to, you know, he used to help, let me help him do the gardening. And that was a very powerful relationship for me because he sort of saw me uh, not through the, the, the eyes of a parent would, you know, but just basically this, 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 this older guy who basically just enjoyed my company. Do you know what I mean? And I felt very sort of like, you know, uh, sort of safe and uh, creatively inspired by him because of that, you know. And so the same with Dado. Dado basically gave me the fuel to basically go, oh, you know. And then he started asking me to do talks um, at some of his uh, organised events. And so that's how I got into this whole teaching thing, um, through someone saying to me, you have uh, an ability to do this, why, why, not, why not run with it? And, and that for me changed everything. And so now when it comes to going back to your previous question about long form, I think, well, you can only do so many things well in life. You know, one of my maxims is like do less better, you know, and I'd rather focus on what I'm trying to do now, what's in front of me now and try and do that really well. It's an old, there's a dry, you know, dry stone 
walling. Uh, they, you know, we, yeah. So they always say, use the stone that's in your hand. You can hunt around for the perfect stone, but the one, the, the perfect stone is the one, in fact, in your hand. You know, so so that's what I'm thinking at the moment. It's like just develop develop what you're doing now. Uh, and see where that leads and then you know take a view on it maybe in a few months or a few you know a year or so from now and see where you are with it so I've got an instinct towards moving in this direction with the, with the teaching and um, with the YouTube channel with the Instagram and and you know I just really fundamentally I just want to stay relevant you know because as a, as a slightly older DOP I mean that's why I want to work with young directors because you know there's a I, I jokingly say we have a kind of intergenerational film set you know because I work with a lot of 20 year olds uh, and uh, and 60 year olds you know there's some sort of very few in between like the grip and the gaffers sometimes I work for very old and they've got a huge amount of experience but then I love a, a bunch of 20 year olds on set as well trainees and you know we've got this sort of program now this mentorship program where we have like trainees coming in um and you know and basically learning about lighting you know so it's not just like a camera trainee where you learn about being a loader or being a a focus pillar but an actual cinematography trainee where you actually focus on the lighting side of things more which isn't a role that's really traditionally been on a film set before but I'm really interested in trying to develop that I hope you are enjoying this podcast. I'd really appreciate it if you can share this episode and subscribe. On each episode, filmmakers talk about their process and their journey. On the next episode, I'll be joined by documentary filmmaker Jean-Com Delalar, whose film Harley was selected to play at Tribeca. The connection and the, the film could connect all these groups, and it's, it's, it was an amazing story. And um, to me, it showed that the film was a success. So that's what we've got coming up on our next episode. But right now, let's get back to this week's guest you're listening to city chill i've got your website on my screen now i love that look of backlit just look it's mm. so it's very pleasing to look at and i remember you spoke about the snowman trailer as well when it's like that wasn't even done when it was winter the insurance one i'm looking at with the uh little boy uh, and the css insurance yeah, yeah that looks so good. Well, I mean, it's all a progression. I mean, so for me, uh, when I started cinema, my journey as a cinematographer, I was really fascinated by the equipment that was around at the time. And I was very interested in the soul of the texture of film stocks. Uh, and so I went on a whole kind of went down a rabbit hole of experimenting with lots of different film stocks and processing techniques. And I drive my producers crazy because I was constantly asking for tests. And I was really looking for that kind of that perfect, unusual film stock that I could kind of own. And people would come to me and go, oh, you're the guy that did that. You know, it's, um, it was kind of a, a, a sort of journey into into unusual either techniques that hadn't really been discovered yet or techniques that, uh, that had been forgotten about. And I was really interested in kind of grading the Panavision shelves because at the time I was working with a lot of equipment from, you know, my directors I was working with were, support, were supported by Panavision. So I got access to all of this old antique glass and filters and these old systems that, you know, things like, like I said earlier, Vericon and Unilux and these very unusual systems that are no longer used. Uh, and I was constantly trying to talk people into always doing something unique and original because the commercial, that's the other thing I love about commercial. Commercials is always about the new and, the, the, you know, trying to uh, stand out. You've got a short amount of time on screen to really stand out. Um, so you need to basically, you have a kind of shorthand in commercials where commercials have a sort of heightened realism to them where things have got to be communicated really quickly. I like that. And I, that, I like that. I like that from a cinematography point of view because you're always experimenting with things and trying new things out and that keeps me really engaged but then what happened later um, is I started realizing that you know much like you know like Roger Deakins for example we mentioned him earlier that you know he just uses like an Ari Alexa Mini and Master Primes for the majority of his work um, and he does it all in the lighting you know and I remember Nestor Almendros I was, I was reading a, uh, watching interviews and reading books on Nestor Almendros I don't know if anyone who doesn't know who Nestor Almendros is should check him out he did basically um, Terence Malick's really early movie uh, Days of Heaven uh, and Days of Heaven right. was the first kind of movie that was all shot during the sort of iridescent uh, evening and early morning lights where it goes from kind of what they call magic hour, you know, that period of going from a sunset through to dusk. Yeah. Uh, uh, so he shot the whole film in that, in that time slot. And it is literally one of the most beautiful atmospheric films you'll ever see, you know, and, and uh, you know, Emmanuel Lebetsky's got a lot of big debt to 
Nestoromendros because you know that whole naturalistic approach to lighting really started with Nestoromendros and of course Terence Malick you know worked with him and then he went on to work with um, Manuel Lebetsky so there's a connection there um, um, but you know so what I discovered with these cinematographers some of the greats you know like Victoria Storaro as well saying they all basically started doing it in the lighting <clears throat> so they started off well I started off trying to use all the latest all, the, all different technologies and thinking it's all about you know how big the crane is or all of this stuff you know um and then you start realizing that's basically it's about seeing light you know you become you start off as a technician and you, you you move from being a technician into being an artist i think you know and when you become an artist it's when you master your tools it's that you know it's like as i say it's an apprenticeship it's learning your craft and you start off basically learning the craft through getting familiar with all the equipment that's out there you know all the names of the, all the technology and maybe you get a chance to work with some of it and you know uh, you certainly should be aware of it so you know if you need it or not you know uh, and then what happens is you go through this process of refining your tools and working out what really works for you and as you go along you shed stuff that no longer works for you or, or uh, and you you um, inherit stuff that's new technologies that can work for you and it's that process uh, and uh, and during that process hopefully what should be happening is you should be getting more and more closer to the actual subject of storytelling and the subject of the, the, the actual lighting and and, the, and creating atmosphere, you know, uh, and the tools should become secondary, you know, um, and that's what happened with, you know, so with, with, sorry, going back to Nestor Mandros, he was he he never used any diffusion on the camera, famously, he just used the lenses, same as uh, Roger Deakins, they neither of them use diffusion filtration on the camera, they do it all in the lighting. If they want something to look soft, they make the light soft. They don't try mm -hmm. and diffuse it in the camera, right? And I found that fascinating because I. I, I, I was fascinated with filters at the time because I remember one of the first jobs I was a trainee on was a, a guy called, um, he, his name was um, Paul Wheeler and he's written many books on cinematography and I was his trainee for a couple of jobs and he had this big big box of filters and it was my job to clean his filters at one point and I was f just fascinated with this box of filters. I, I, I used to literally go home and dream at night about this filter box and how one day I'd have a filter box like that. It was like going through... It was like going through fine jewels, you know. It's like going through. You imagine if you, if you, you know, someone lets you, you know, one of the, uh, you know, sort of aristocracy lets you go through their jewel collection or something. That's what it felt like to me, you know. Uh, so I started collecting loads of filters and getting interested in filters and going to Panavision and trying all these filters out and all of that. And then I realised later on, my journey was like I said, as I realised that it was more about the lighting, you know. That's the thing that controls the image uh, to the greatest extent. Of course, glass has an effect and the cameras have an effect, but nowhere near as much as people might think, you know. You, you know, I can shoot something on an iPhone or, you know, good cinematographer be able to shoot something on an iPhone if it's lit effectively, then it's going to look great, you know. As you proved as well with your recent challenge you did on Instagram, I looked on the hashtag and, oh my God, there were so many amazing photos taken on a cell phone. I know, weren't they great? Yeah. 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 And the selection that you put out there of, of of the ones that you know you like the best, I was like, these can't have been shot on an iPhone. No, um, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it begs belief, isn't it? I mean, th there you go. So the technology now is so like we spoke about earlier, the barriers to entry now with the new technologies. It's not about the technology so much anymore. You know, it's about um, you know, I spoke to a, I was speaking to a photographer the other day, an old friend of mine who's been a, a, a commercial photographer most of his life you know and I remember when I used to hang around in Soho with him when we were younger he always used to have a, a Nikon uh, uh, DSLR um, not DSLR back then it was film uh, Nikon SLR around his neck you know and uh, had this big chunky camera and a big lens on it and nowadays he just basically shoots everything with an iPhone because <laughs> he says that's a new movement in, in photography as far as he's concerned you know because it's not about necessarily that technology it's about developing your eye and you know and you know you don't necessarily need the the most advanced tools for that you mentioned roger deakins i have to ask you about 1917 but have you seen that film yes yet? yeah yeah i've seen it if there's any film out there that makes a filmmaker go do you know what i give up i've seen a few films where they have the long takes the first one that comes to mind is children of men yeah i love that film i love the look of it i love i loved all of it apart from the long takes because I felt like the long takes I, I could feel when something was cued like okay when you get there that's mm. when we showed the bike and yeah, when that yeah, gets yeah. there but yeah. with 1917 I did not feel that once I'd never felt anything was being cued I just felt 
on the literally on the edge of my seat because a lot of what you spoke about is lighting but then another big part of what you do it's also how there's movement in the frame as well what's it like to light something where you know the camera's got to be like moving around as well like it's all very well to set something up for say a wide shot like if someone's walking through a house like how the hell would you like like that and for like if say a one or one shot if i'm explaining that the right way i don't know if i am no no this is this is a very very good question and i'm really glad you asked it um, well, that's the big difference between photography and cinematography. And I'm very influenced by, <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier, by fine art painters and, and uh, photographers. And I do, I do really, I think my heart, I have more of a photographic maybe approach, or I certainly would like to do more work, which, which is more um, photographic. Um, uh, <clears throat> but, but what I do is, is cinematography, and you're quite right, the camera's moving uh, oftentimes. Uh, and so you, you basically, um, <clears throat> it's like when we, when you talk about three point lighting, theory of three point lighting is, is, is a stills theory. It's not really, it's been inherited by cinematography to explain cinematography lighting. And I think that's a big mistake actually. So I, when I talk about three point lighting, I don't talk about key lights, fill lights and backlights. I talk about, um, modeling lights, lights that shape, that model the frame, lights that give the frame three dimensional, lights that give the subject three dimensional, the room three dimensions. So usually that's the light coming from the side or three quarter, you know, uh, three quarter front, you know, to, to give something shape. And then I talk about, rather than backlight, I talk about lights that separate planes. So it's a separating light. Uh, and that light um, basically um, can be actually the background light or it can be a, an actual backlight but it's the light that separates the planes that gives things three dimensions and then you have uh, um, the, the, the fill light which I refer to as a softening light because it's a light that brings up the shadows and brings up uh, um, the darker side of uh, you know the shadow side of a face or shadow you know the shadow the pools of shadow in the room for example and that that light softens the light because it kind of wraps the light around the artist or whatever or, 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 or reduces the contrast in the room right so that's i like to talk about the function the light performs rather than this sort of dry academic term that refers to a fixed point of light in relation to a subject um so you're quite right um cinematography is about movement as well as uh as as lighting static wide shots and close-ups and whatnot uh so you have to be aware of how the camera's going to move for a frame or you know you kind of have to have this almost like this i was trying to find the right word for this is so it's a combination of basically lighting the set if you're going to light a room you're sort of simultaneously lighting the set for your wide shot but you're simultaneously having an understanding of the blocking of that scene and where you're going to end up so you kind of you're having these two things in your mind at the same time you're lighting your wide shot so the wide shot has got the right atmosphere the right time of day the Mm -hmm. right mood for what you're trying to do but you're also breaking it down in your head going well we can grab a two shot there the close-up can come from there if I'm going to move, I'm going to move from there to there. Do you know what I mean? And if that artist is going to move, they're going to move out from that dark space into that light space. You know, so you're kind of it's like a dance you're doing in your mind and with the artist um, in the context of the space or the room, where you kind of like you're breaking it down, uh, like in choreography of where the camera's going to the staging of the camera and the blocking of the artist, uh, and you're basically preempting what's going to be happening and how to get yourself out of corners you know because sometimes you end up in a corner uh, and you know I cheat a lot you know I, I basically go I always with the directors I'm always basically what I'm trying to do on set always with them in the recce particularly is I'm saying to them right let's limit ourselves to a certain angle of view you know let's go for that direction and by doing that what I'm doing is I what I you know, directors have 360 degree heads when they're looking all over the place going oh let's shoot that there and let's shoot that over there and I'm like yeah we can do that if we had two days to shoot this but we don't so <laughs> let's let's be practical about it and let's basically shoot mainly in that direction and and they go and he'll say to me or she'll say to me what about the reverses and i'll say well we cheat those you know because they're really easy the um the close-ups are easy don't worry about those we can cheat those i'm more worried about getting coverage that that is it's going to look cinematic you know um so yeah so in answer to your question moving the camera yeah you, 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 in cinematography that 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 modeling light changes as you move through the set, those those lights change function, right? So, the separating light might become the modelling light, and the modelling light might become the the you know one of the softening lights. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? So, it's more kind of a uh, a sort of honest, uh, active way of thinking about light. So, yeah, and and the fact that your camera's moving through light, you know. So, um, but I'm always looking for drama for extremes. You know, like I like people to come out of shadow into light, and vice versa, and 
you know, I'm, you know, I, I don't have a problem with someone standing by a bright window and, you know, things like, you know, if you look at Gordon Willis's work, Gordon Willis, like I said earlier, he's Prince of Darkness, you know, look at, look at The Godfather and look at Annie Hall and look at some of the, you know, Clute and some of the films he shot and mm. you'll see that he, he, he was the first cinematographer not to overlight things, to let people go and fall into darkness, you know, just give them a tiny bit of separating light. You know, and Seven's another example. That Seven's a masterful example of, of having dark interior sets where you can't see everything that's going on because he wants to engage your imagination. And the way you do that is by not showing everything. David Fincher basically said that give everyone a dog's POV, basically. So David Fincher, who's the director of Seven, wanted the camera to be down low behind the action. So you had to kind of like, you know, creak your neck around to see what, what was going on. You, he wasn't giving you the privileged point of view of that the audience sometimes is, is um, you know, is provided with, you know, he gave, uh, you know, like a dog's point of view. So you're constantly having to sort of quite, not quite know what's going on and not quite, and that creates intrigue, doesn't it? You know, and it creates suspense. So yeah. that's really smart, I thought. That's why Seven was such a big influence on me because it did that so well. And he's such a, I mean, he's one of my favourite directors. I, every interview you, you watch or every DVD commentary, which I've listened to, you, you know, he doesn't dumb anything down. It's like he talks like he would talk to, I imagine, like his crew. And, you know, that, that's where I learned so much. And one of the things that um, I'll never forget when, he spoke about it was he wanted to make films that scar people and you just go, Oh, that's such a thing to say. Like, you know, you get all the directors who are all kind of fluffy and you know, Oh, it's such a lovely mm. experience. And then his films like, no, I want you to be scarred when you watch this movie. I want you to, you know, to, it to stick with you. But he started his film career with alien three. Don't think it did very well. I know he's distanced himself completely from it. And I remember he was chatting to Ed Norton on this commentary about, about you know debut films because Edward Norton was about to direct this film and he was saying to him I'm not sure if I want to do this because I'm not sure sure about the script and Fincher just said to him look did you think I wanted to do Alien 3 you have to start um somewhere, somewhere yeah but he's he's brilliant I wish he would make more stuff he's not made anything for a while now um, yeah I know I, I agree he for me he's the biggest the my favorite biggest hitting director mainstream director I like a lot of uh, kind of art movies, I guess you could say, or, you know, uh, um, but I think as a mainstream director, I actually prefer him to Christopher Nolan. I think he, for me, for my tastes, um, he, like you say, I've never seen a, you know, I haven't actually seen Alien 3. I didn't realise he did that, but I've never seen the films of, of his I have seen. The worst one, I think, is Panic Room, which I still think is a great movie. So, you know. Yeah. So, and that um, was, and he also pushes the boundary with, you know, uh, the visual effects and, and the cinematography. Like, I know in, I think it was the social network where he had this way of filming, uh, he he would use like three of like different takes, and he would composite. He, he would composite into like one shot, or and, and you know, and very like you know things like that. When it was say he get the actor's performance who was on half of the screen, and he didn't like the actor's performance on the who was like on the other half of the screen, mm. so he would just literally mm. split it and then like mm. rearrange time and stuff like that, which gets into the whole kind of visual effects aspects of things but i just love that he is an absolute perfectionist i know on the zodiac which is one of my favorite fincher movies oh yeah same here it's same here. So Zodiac's good. a very underrated movie yeah I mean, people a lot of people haven't seen that movie and they really should it's 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 a tour de force zodiac it really is it's an amazing movie there's a sequence in it and it's in the behind the scenes where you know fincher's notorious for doing uh, multiple takes and it was just a a very quick shot of a folder landing inside of the car like landing on the car chair and he, he made them do it like 50 times because he knew exactly how he wanted that folder to to land on the on the car seat and you just mentioned christopher nolan i think the star of christopher nolan's batman movies was wally fister yeah that partnership between a director and the uh, cinematographer do you find you work with the same people quite often or do you like to work with different people yeah you see you're asking really all good questions so yeah in relationship to the relationship uh, the director of photography has with uh, the, uh, the director um, I personally I think there's two kinds of relationships that can be formed there's um, the relationship with a director that um, 
is kind of like just for that job because the director believes that the, the DOP is right for that job. And then there's a relationship that's formed where the director basically wants to build a body of work with a DOP. And they're basically knowing that, that the, the second experience, once you've kind of, because the first, it's a bit like a blind date, the first time you work with someone, you know, there's a bit of, you mm. know, you're walking on eggshells to a certain extent because you're kind of, you're sort of sussing each other out a little bit and you're working mm-hmm. out what the, what the limitations are with communication and with kind of the sort of your creative uh, approach and what technologies you, you, that the director likes, you know, sometimes they really like to have control of the lens, the optics, and other times they, they want your input, you know, and it's knowing when to sort of stand your ground with them and when to kind of, uh, and when to kind of, um, a compromise, you know, uh, photographically. Um, so you're learning all about the first time you work with them, I think. So, um, I prefer personally prefer working with directors over a period, over a body of work. Because uh, I find that I relax more around the second time I work with them. If they've appreciated the work I've done before, I feel a bit more confident about what I'm doing because I have that kind of history with them, you know. Um, and I think that I, I think that they get more out of me the the more they work with me. So, um, so yeah, that I like building relationships with directors over a period of time. Uh, and then you know the relationship can go stale if we work together too much. Then the relationship can go stale. You you become a little bit um, 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 not lazy, perhaps, but you know you you become a bit too familiar. You know, and there, yeah. there is good. To, there, there, it is important sometimes to have a certain level of tension on a film set. You know, so so people focus. You know, I mean, I remember once when I worked as a focus puller. The first time I did a commercial as a focus puller, I didn't understand when you do commercials because I came through music videos as a focus puller and the first time I did a commercial it was it had um a different pace to it and I um I took my eye off the ball because I wasn't used to staying focused at uh, 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 a seemingly um more relaxed pace you know when in fact what was happening is it was the same level of focus required but it was just it wasn't physically running around London or whatever it was just being in the studio so yeah, so uh, I think having a level of tension between you and the director is not a bad thing, you know, to keep you focused, to keep you sharp. But I certainly think that um, I prefer to work directors um, more than once. Finally, because I want to start to wrap things up, if you can briefly give me some advice. So what's the best advice that you could give to someone who wants to start out in cinematography? Um, well, I'd say question... Uh, question your reasons for wanting to do it so if your reason to to become a cinematographer is that you hear that it's a really nice lifestyle and um and it's kind of uh it's um glamorous uh then you're probably wrong about that because it's not actually it can be very hard work and there's aspects of it that can be quite quite glamorous i mean maybe not so much now after coronavirus because we you know i used to travel around the world quite a lot that's probably going to change now um uh, and I'd say, for me, the most authentic um, reason to do something is because you're fascinated by the craft of it. Because that, see, that's the least likely to change over a period of time. Whereas if it's a lifestyle that you're going for, that that could change. Um, and I don't think that's, like I say, the, the best reason to get into it. So I'd say have a hard look into yourself and, and really work it out what your what your kind of personality is. You know how what you kind of want out of out of, um, out of your career and be just try and be honest about your reasons for getting into something um, and realize also that um, if you've got a big ego say for example and you want notoriety um, cinematography again might not be for you because people don't really give a damn about the cinematographer I mean it's changing now people are more familiar with cinematographers now other DOPs young DOPs young people that want to be a DOP are familiar with cinematography when I started film school, people didn't really know what cinematographer did or was. Or you know, it's a quite it's a very small kind of group of people that had um, people thought films were made by directors. You know, that's what they thought. Um, so uh, you, you're not li- likely to get a lot of notoriety as a cinematographer. Uh, so you shouldn't be doing it for those reasons. And and if the film is so, either the film's not going to be successful and you're not going to get notoriety because it's not successful. And if the, the film is successful. 
uh, then the chances are the director's going to take credit for it and they're not going to give you any credit because that's, you know, directors basically, um, you know, they, they, they take the risk and they take the credit, you know. So, um, the, and the, the advantage of that is if you're a cinematographer and you do something that isn't very good or, you know, you, you get to kind of walk away from it without too much damage. But if you're a director, then you have to kind of wear it to a greater extent, you know. So that's a fair, that's a fair, a fair kind of deal. So, yeah, I, I'd say... Um, yeah, really have an honest appraisal of who you are, what your interests are. And if your interests are the craft of cinematography, then give it a go. You know, there's a lot of composition out there at the moment, though, I must say. You know, there's a lot of people that want to do this job. Yeah. But, you know, you've got to follow your heart in life. You've got to follow your creative impulse. You know, that's very, very important. Because, you know, when you get older in life, you basically don't regret the things you did do, you regret the things you didn't do. So um, it's missed opportunities that come back to haunt you, you know. So I'd say if you've got a creative impulse or something, it needs to be explored. Perfect. And I've just wrote the episode title, I think, What's Your Creative Impulse? Yeah, great. Uh, Ian, where can people find out more about you? You've mentioned your YouTube channel. Have you? Is it just under your name? So, yeah, so my YouTube channel is Ian Murray um, DOP. And my Instagram is Ian Murray DOP. Uh, I do a thing called set notes where I break down uh, the lighting uh, and the camera uh, sometimes on on the content we're producing. Um, I want to do more YouTube videos on, uh, on uh, I'm going to sort of embark on a kind of masterclass type series of, of breakdowns starting from very basic principles of light and going through to specialist uh, areas like you know lighting for fashion beauty cars you know um food that sort of thing um and so that's going to be on the youtube channel and uh, uh and also I'm, I'm represented by vision artists in london um so that's how if you want to work with me that's how you get hold of me um, and yeah, I'm keen to work with young directors, young up and coming directors. Um, I like, like I said, that intergenerational, um, mix of 20 year olds and, and seasoned experienced, uh, filmmakers. I think that's a very, very good mix. And I'm keen to get hold of we're, At the moment we're looking for editors because we are basically looking for people that are going to help us with our YouTube channel. So we're quite keen to meet videographers that want to learn more about lighting or learn more about cinema. Um, and we want to kind of um, bring them on as sort of uh, interns, stroke apprentices, and they will eventually get paid as soon as we can monetize YouTube, uh, which I'm told can we can do, you know, quite quickly once we get going. So um, yeah, so if anyone's interested, in, uh, please get in touch with me, uh, DM me on Instagram, and uh, we'll go from there. Excellent, Ian. Thank you so much for your time. That was uh, that was great. Yeah, Simon, it's been a pleasure, man. And um, yeah, uh, really good luck with your podcast. I think it's great what you're doing. And that's it for this episode. And as always, a big thank you to Ian for taking the time out to chat with us. You can find out more information about Ian and all of our guests by going over to our website, cinechill.com. There you can find the episode page for this podcast, how to connect with Ian and watch his excellent YouTube channel. If you did like this episode, go to iTunes, leave a review and subscribe. It takes seconds and it really does help us. But until next time, thanks for listening.